Great. Uh, Grab a Bible. It's Psalm 96 this morning, please. Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Once there was a wicked witch in the lovely land of Oz, and a wickeder, wickeder, wickeder witch there never, never was. She filled the folks in Munchkin land with terror and with dread, till one fine day from Kansas was a cyclone, uh, well, sorry, till one fine day from Kansas way a cyclone caught a house that brought the wicked, wicked witch her doom as she was flying on her broom. For the house fell on her head, and the coroner pronounced her dead. And through the town the joyous news was spread. Sing with me. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Witch old witch, the wicked witch. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. Wake up, you sleepy head. Rub your eyes, get out of bed. Wake up, the wicked witch is dead. She's gone where the goblins go. Below, 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 yo-ho. Let's open up and sing. And ring the bells out, ding dong. The merry o, sing it high, sing it low. Let them let them know the wicked witch is dead. All right, I'm a, only Angie was singing with me, so let's try that again. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Well, there we are. Something about experiencing victory, okay, makes one's heart leap for joy and burst out into song. You see that in the Olympic Games, if you win a gold medal, one of the first things they do is they sing the national anthem. When England win the rugby, the terraces chant down, don't they? Swing low, sweet chariot. Or if if Wales win the rugby, it's bread of heaven. Something about victory makes your heart leap for joy and sing out in song. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. Psalm 96 is, is such a song. It's the middle of uh, a series of psalms between Psalm 93 and Psalm 99 that celebrate God as the victorious king. A song that celebrates his victory over all of his enemies, over all of his challenges, over all pretenders and false gods. And it's set in the context of 1 Samuel chapters 4 to 6. Let me explain that to you. Israel was at war with the Philistines, and they were losing. And so they decided to do an unusual thing. They decided that they would send the Ark of the Covenant out at the front of the battle uh, so that in some kind of strange kind of Star Wars Jedi kind of way that it would be a magical force that would push back the Philistines and destroy their evil nemesis. Now, when you think about the ark, don't think the fancy, magical, special box that Indiana Jones was searching for. The ark was uh, a symbol of God's presence among his people. So it was the place where in the ark was the tablets that Moses was given on the the, uh, Mount of Sinai. And there was Aaron's uh, stick or staff that budded. And there's a few other things, so a pot of manna from heaven. And so... The ark represented God's presence and his authority amongst his people. And so they planned to weaponize this against the Philistines, but it backfired horrendously and Israel was brutally crushed on the battlefield and the Philistines ended up capturing the ark and taking it back to their land and putting it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Okay, 
but it was simply more than just a trophy of, of victory in war for the Philistines. What it meant that they had captured it was that God's presence had departed from Israel. Unfaithful and faithless Israel, God's presence had departed from them. Now, you might know the story. The Philistines put it in the temple of Dagon, and then they come in the next morning, and they find that the statue of Dagon, or this idol that they worshipped, was fallen face down in front of the ark. They were a little bit perplexed because no one had been in there, so they stood him up again next to the ark. And then the next day, when they went into the temple, they found that uh, not only had the statue fallen on its face, but his head and his hands had been cut off in the presence of the Almighty God. The Philistines were slow to learn, and so they kept the ark for seven months. And during that seven-month period, uh, they broke out in all sorts of horrible tumors and were afflicted with uh, a nasty plague of tumors. And eventually they decided that enough was enough, and they would return the ark back to Israel. And so they hitched up a couple of cows on a cart, and they put the ark on the cart, and they sent it in the direction of Israel. Eventually, it crossed over into Israel's land, but for reasons unknown and unexplained in the Bible, uh, it ends up languishing in the house of Abinadab on the hill in an obscure village called Kiriath-Jerim. And it was there for 20 years. Then David, uh, during that period, had ascended the throne after Saul, and he was now king, uh, and he had pushed back the enemies and established Jerusalem as the capital and decided that now it was the right time to bring the ark, this symbol of God's presence, into the heart of his kingdom and back into the central life of the people and the nation. And so in 1 Chronicles 16, you have this record of David gathering together all of the musicians and all of the singers and all of the dancers in the nation to throw a great big party to welcome the ark back into Jerusalem. It was a momentous occasion and David himself is recorded as dancing like a, uh, a crazy guy in front of everybody as God the king comes back to his kingdom, victorious over all of, his, over all of the lesser gods of the surrounding nations. And if you read 1 Chronicles 16, you'll get to verses 23 to 33, and you'll find that they are exactly the words of Psalm 96. Because on that day of victory, they sang Psalm 96. So let's read it together. <clears throat> oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness and tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved, and he will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. 
Then all the trees of the forest shall sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples in faithfulness. Let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and we pray that as we think about missions and the good news of the gospel and all that God has done, you will use this psalm not just to inform us but to inspire us that we wouldn't be exhausted as we listen to it but we would be exhilarated as we hear your word and as your spirit works. We pray these things for the sake of the gospel advancing around the world, for the glory of Jesus, and for the joy of all peoples. Amen. Amen. Well, Spurgeon called this the Grand Missionary Psalm, and in fact, some people have called it the Great Commission of the Old Testament. Uh, And it's the first time in, in the whole Psalter, the whole book of Psalms, 150, that you find that there is a emphasis on the nations from the first verse to the last verse. Now, in other places, for, I think it's uh, Psalm 47, and there may be somewhere else, uh, uh, there's, there's one or two verses that might imply something that spreads to the nations. But here, this is a, star, a psalm from the first verse to the last verse that sets out an expansive and a worldwide vision of worship among all peoples as we worship Christ the King. The psalm is split into two sections, and they're on repeating cycles. So in verses 1 to 6, you have this first section. And verses 1 to 3 give us a call to praise God. And then verses 4 to 6 give us reasons to praise God. And then in the second section, which is 7 to 13, is the, the same cycle is repeated. So verses 7 to 9 are the call to praise God. And then the reasons are given in 10 to 13. And so that's kind of the format that we're going to take this morning. But what we're going to learn as we go through this psalm is this, and I put it on the screen so you can remember it. And here's what the psalm is getting at. Those who sing of God's saving kingly reign, we, we won't rest until all the nations and all creation join in the song. So those of us who sing of God's saving reign, of his kingship, we won't rest until all the nations and all creation join in the song. That's what we're going to see this morning. So let's dive in into this first section of the psalm and the first cycle, which is worship and witness, verses 1 to 3. You'll notice in verse 1 that the psalmist calls us to sing, sing, Sing three times, sing, 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 and we're called to sing a new song to the Lord. But that's not trawl through iTunes, get on Spotify and YouTube and find the latest releases from the Christian worship music world. Neither is it a statement that old songs are bad, which some of you older people amongst us will be glad of, I'm sure. It's not that old songs are bad. It's not that, oh, we just got to be on the cutting edge of the latest music. No, but as as commentator Derek Kidner says, we need new songs that celebrate the mercies of God because the mercies of God are new every morning. 
So we need new songs because God is always doing new things. He's always showing new mercies. We need to sing new songs that respond to new examples and new experiences of God's saving work. Sometimes that can be old songs uh, that we sing in it with fresh and new understanding or insight. But we need to sing new songs every day because of the new mercies that come to us. This was Israel's experience. So when they uh, escaped out of Egypt in the Exodus, when they crossed over the Red Sea in Exodus 15, they broke into a new song. Then when they were uh, uh, under the rule of the judges and under the attack of the Canaanites and Deborah leads them to victory in war, Deborah and Barak sing a new song in Judges 5. The Psalms are a collection of songs sung by Israel as they remembered and they celebrated God's acts of deliverance from the Assyrians and from the Babylonians. And here, as we said, Psalm 96 itself is a song that that sings of the new thing that God is doing as he returns in triumph to Jerusalem. The greatest moments in life, there seems to be this natural instinct to want to sing. Like I said, ding dong, the witch is dead. Or the Olympics or the rugby Or birthdays, we mark them by singing. At weddings, we mark them with first dances to the favorite song of the couple. At funerals, we sing hymns that were the favorite of those who have died. Psalm 196 in verses 1 to 3 commands us to sing because singing has a great purpose. Look at what it says. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works to all the peoples. Singing is proclamation. Actually, in verse 2 where it says tell, uh, that word might be better understood or better translated evangelize. That, that's kind of how it was understood as when the Greeks uh, translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek language. They, the word tell there was the word uh, for evangelism. It was to evangelize, go and herald, go and proclaim his salvation from day to day. So this psalm starts with a command to both worship and witness. Worship and witness to go and tell through our song the good news of the gospel of God, his salvation. We're to tell of his marvelous works. And when when the Bible speaks of marvelous works, that really is a summation for all of his deliverance, all of his salvation to those who call upon him for help. This is a statement that God goes into battle on behalf of his people. That's what it means when he does wondrous works. He's the deliverer. He's the savior. He's the redeemer. He's the one who fights for his people. And then we're to declare his glory, which literally means his heaviness. That's what glory means. It's his heaviness. So he's not only a God who goes into battle to fight for his people, but he's victorious and he's heavy, heavily laden down and weighed down by the spoils of victory. Such is his glory. We're called to speak and sing and proclaim and tell and evangelize and herald his salvation, his marvelous deeds and his heaviness of victory. So that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, that the light of the gospel is the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And when God breaks into the darkness through Jesus Christ, he has shone into our hearts, giving us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
So we're called to sing, sing, sing. As we experience the triumph of God's grace, we're to shout about it with joy. We're not just to keep it to ourselves. We are to invite and tell the nations. The call here in the first half of the psalm is to worship and witness. But there's reasons as well. So in this first cycle, verses 4 to 6, give us the reasons why we should worship and witness. Why do we sing? Why do we get excited about worshiping God? I hope you do. Why do we want the nations to come and hear? Well, Israel was surrounded by pagans who worshipped other gods. They worshipped Ashtaroth. They worshipped Baal. They worshipped Molech. They worshipped Dagon. But here, the psalmist tells us that we should fear the God of Israel above all other gods. Above all these lesser gods, above all of these pretend gods, Israel's God is to be feared, to be awed, to be revered, to be worshipped above all of these other gods. And there's a, there's a couple of things going on in verse 5 that give us why he should be feared. In the language of verse 5, it says this, For the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Literally, it would mean uh, if you read the gods of the peoples could be translated gods made by peoples. So the psalmist is saying, on one hand, we've got the gods made by peoples, and on the other hand, we've got the God who made the heavens. Who's going to be feared? Who should be worshipped? The gods made by peoples or the God who made everything? See the irony there? That's what the, there's a reason here. Who are we going to worship? We're going to worship Dagon? No, he, he can't even stand. The stone can't even stand in front of God's presence. He's decapitated and his hands are cut off. The gods of the peoples or the God of heaven. But then there's something else going on in verse 5. There's a, there's a kind of a play on words that you, we lose in our English Bibles as God mocks these other gods. And that's actually a common way in which God speaks about other gods in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, rather. God mocks them. So, for instance, uh, these, unfortunately, these won't come up on the screen, but in Isaiah chapter 44, God basically says, man plants a tree, man waters a tree, man grows a tree, man cuts a tree down. He uses half the tree for fuel to cook and bake bread, and with the other half of the tree, makes a god. What's that about? Then the famous story in, uh, in 1 Kings 18, when Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal, he says, where's your God? Is he on holiday? Maybe he's on the loo. He's not coming though, is he? He's not going to rescue you. God mocks these idols, these gods made by peoples. And in verse 5, the word gods there at the beginning of verse 5 in the Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim. And then the word for idols is Elilim. So Elohim and Elilim. And they kind of sound the same because what the Hebrew is getting at is your Elohim gods are Elilim useless. That's what the word means. So he literally says, your mighty gods are mighty useless. Your Elohim are Elilim. Your mighty gods are mighty useless. They're made by people, whereas our God made the peoples and the heavens. 
No one compares to him. Nothing can compare to him. He has no rivals. He has triumphed over all of these lesser gods and he reigns victorious. He is great. His salvation is great. His glory is heavy. So peoples sing and evangelize and praise and proclaim and worship and witness to everyone everywhere. That's the call of the psalm. And so we have to go to the peoples around us The peoples who worship sex and money and possessions and independence and fame and power and those kind of lesser gods, pretend gods who promise so much but deliver so little. We're to go to the people of Hinduism and Islam and Buddhism and hedonism and all of the other false religions that are in the world. And we're to say to them, our God reigns. Our God reigns over all of you. No one can compare to him. And he has conquered and vanquished all of his enemies. Sin and death and Satan being primary. And he sits in his, on his heavenly throne in supremacy. Look at verse 6. Splendor and majesty are his. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary, in his dwelling place. Those who sing of God's saving and kingly reign, we should not rest until all the nations and creation join in the song. So that's the first half, the first cycle. But the second half of the psalm is more of the same. We get another call to worship and witness in verses 7 to 9. Look at how it follows the same pattern, except the words are different. In verses 1 to 3, it's sing, sing, sing. But in verses 7, 8, and 9, it's ascribe, 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 ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. This is uh, very similar to Psalm 29. If you read Psalm 29, you will find almost identical language at the beginning of that psalm. But the difference between Psalm 29 and Psalm 96 here is that in Psalm 29, It's the angels that are called to ascribe praise and glory to God. But here, it's all the families of the peoples. It's a stirring call. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. All the peoples. And that's the same words as we saw back in verse 5. So really what the psalmist is saying here is to all the peoples, to those peoples whose gods have been Uh, exposed and dismissed as useless. Come and worship the true God. Come and ascribe glory to him. Not, uh, and that word ascribe means to give. But it's not giving something God that he's lacking. It's giving him the worship and the praise and the glory that is commensurate with the infinite power and glory that he has. So all the people's whose gods are exposed, whose gods are futile, whose gods are useless, come now and ascribe true worship to the true God. Come. God has made himself known. He's revealed himself and his glory. He's put it on display in his marvelous works. And it is not just for Old Testament Jews. It's not just for small ethnic groups. It's not just for a hundred or so people in this room this morning. It's for the nations, for all the peoples, for all ethnicities, for all tribes, for all languages. 
See, God is about gathering together a truly global, truly diverse choir to sing his eternal praises. The nations here are invited to come with reverence and trembling to worship God. In fact, uh, verses 11 and, and 12 indicate that it's not just the nations who will come and bow down and ascribe glory to God, but the whole of creation. It's the whole of creation will sing praises to God. Now, why? Well, here's the second part of the second cycle, the reasons for this second call to worship and witness. Verse 10. The Lord reigns. Why should people ascribe glory and honor and strength to God? Because he reigns. The Lord reigns. And when the, when the psalmist says the Lord reigns, he's not just stating some timeless theological truth. He is making a new and overwhelming assertion of God's sovereignty and his rule and his reign. It's an announcement. This is the king coming in all of his glory. And he's coming as king and he's coming as judge. He says it in verse 10 and in verse 13. When the king comes, he's going to take his rightful place on the throne and the whole world and all of creation will be stable and established contrary to the current rising and falling of regimes and kingdoms and empires in humanity. God's going to come and he's going to establish the world. He's going to stabilize it and all of creation is going to burst forth and sing. There's going to be an ecstatic welcome as the Lord reigns in creation that is currently groaning under the weight of the curse, awaiting that glorious day. Uh, that Romans 8, Paul speaks about when it will be finally free from the curse and free from the effects of the fall and it will break forth into song and creation will be able to do what it was created to do, which is to sing the praises of God. Then creation will sing. Seas roar, fields exult, trees shout for joy. Why? Because the Lord reigns, he's the king and he's coming to judge. It may appear now that the Lord doesn't reign because the nations rage before him. But one day, here the psalmist says, God is going to come. He's going he's to reign and he's going to judge. And he's going to judge, notice, with righteousness, with faithfulness, with equity. That means it's going to be fair. That means Everyone who doesn't receive mercy will receive perfect justice. That means God doesn't grade on a human curve. That means that he grades according to his absolute standard of holiness and perfection and his nature. And he compares us not to one another. Oh, you're a bit better than them over there, but this side is better than that side. No, he compares us to himself. And he will judge faithfully and true. Not whimsically or arbitrarily. And for those who have not received and accepted his offer of salvation through the Savior that he provides, it will be a great day of terror. It will be a great day of terror, which Revelation 6, verses 15 to 17 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, they'll hide themselves in the caves 
and among the rocks of the mountains. And they'll call out to the mountains and the rocks saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come. And who can stand? But for those of us who by faith in the shed blood of the Lamb who have been clothed with His righteousness it will not be a day of terror it will be a day of joy. And the writer John in Revelation 19 verses 6 and 7 says this we will sing hallelujah for the Lord God the Almighty reigns. Sounds like Psalm 96 doesn't it? Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. God is the king and the judge and we are to both worship and witness because he's coming to judge the world for our sins against his perfect standard of righteousness. And it will be either a day of terror or a day of joy. A day of terror where people will say, oh, mountains and rocks, it would be better that you crushed me to death than I faced God's wrath. Or it will be a day of great joy where we shall say, the Lord reigns. For the lamb who was slain has covered us with his blood. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me strongly urge you. Let me urge you to make sure your faith is in Jesus Christ so that you can look forward to the day when the judge comes, not with terror, but with joy. And for those of us that are Christians... Here's how we apply Psalm 96. Here's how we apply it. We've seen the worship and the witness cycles. We've seen the reasons. Here's how we apply it now. Two things. Firstly, if this glorious, victorious God is our deliverer, we should be a worshiping people. Sounds obvious, but that is one of the applications. If this glorious, victorious God is our King and our Deliverer, we should be a worshipping people. That should mean that our hearts will break forth into song as we sing His praises. That there should be something within us, our spiritual instinct, if you like, should, be, should go to how great He is and how worthy of praise He is. And I want to sing about it. And I want to shout about it. And I want to tell people how great and mighty he is. And I want to break into song. And my heart is so full of gratitude and thankfulness for his mercy. And it's so bowed down in reverence before his holiness that I can't but sing out. In the car, in the shower, especially when we gather together on a Sunday morning. There should be something about us that says we look forward to, with delight every time we can gather with his saints to sing his praises. I don't want to miss it. I'm not going to the rugby. I'm not going to the shops. I'm not going on holiday. Well, you can go on holiday. Of course you can. But, you know, there's something about us that says, but even on holiday, I want to sing with God's people. I want to sing his praises. I don't want to just lounge around on a sunbed enjoying the sun. I want to worship the sun. 
If God is this glorious, victorious deliverer, we should be a worshipping people. Secondly, if God is this glorious, victorious deliverer, we should be a witnessing people. There you go. Worship and witness. We should be a worshipping people. We should be a witnessing people, both locally and globally. Witness is an overflow of worship. So the psalmist says, sing, sing, sing. Evangelize. Declare. They go hand in hand. Sing, sing, sing. Evangelize, declare. Worship overflows into witness. If you have been captivated by something, you want to tell everybody about it. Who remembers my, from years ago, Ben and Jerry's illustration of ice cream? Probably you do because that's the only thing people remember about my sermons. That I love Ben and Jerry's and if you love Ben and Jerry's, you want to tell everybody about it. You want to tell them about the marshmallow pieces and the chocolate pieces and the caramel sauce and the cookie dough. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Ellie. And your heart goes, oh, yeah, I want a bit of that too. And now we're all thinking, I hope he's going to be quicker so that we can get to Sainsbury's. We tell others about the things that have captivated us. If God has so captivated us by his glory and his salvation, we should want to tell others about him. For those who sing of God's saving and kingly reign, we won't rest until all of the nations and creation join in. Now here's the question. How will the nations join in? How will the nations know about a king who's coming and about the judgment that he's bringing that can either end in terror or joy unless we tell them? Well, the answer is they won't. There's the challenge and the charge and the commandment here in verse 10. Say among the nations. Say, go to the nations and say, the Lord reigns. Psalm 96 is not given just for information, it's given for inspiration, as I prayed at the beginning. It's not given to make us feel exhausted by the size and the enormity of the task, but to thrill our hearts so that we say, how do I get in on this? How can I get involved? How can I be part of this privilege to say to the nations, the Lord reigns, and you can know him and be delivered by him and saved by him through Jesus Christ. We go and we say, I've tasted of the goodness of Jesus Christ. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Let me share him with you. He's better than Ben and Jerry's. He's better than mountain scenes. He's better than beaches and oceans and money and sex and pleasure and television. He's done marvelous things through Jesus Christ. And he gives us freedom and forgiveness and the life that we're all looking for. Say to the nations, the Lord reigns. So we want to extend God's invitation of salvation to the nations, to the people, so that they can join us in singing his praises. So we want to do that locally, don't we? We want to do that locally. The nations are on our doorstep. We are surrounded by the peoples whose gods have been exposed as empty and useless. They live next door to us. We work with them. We go to school with them. We shop in the same supermarkets with them. And so our commitment must be Let's start singing God's praises in front of them. Maybe that's just personal one-to-one friendships that you've got that you need to take the next step. Maybe it's mothers and toddlers. We've got a bunch of mums who are 
uh, going to mothers and toddlers, a bunch of mums who are pregnant or, or would-be mums who are pregnant. We've got people who have probably got time in the daytime. Here's an opportunity. It's not just a group to serve you. It's a group where you can go and say to the nations, the Lord reigns. Get a different perspective on it. Monday night football for the guys. That's an opportunity not just to go and get fit or to play football or to score spectacular goals. It's an opportunity to say, the Lord reigns. Can I tell you about it? Change our perspective. When you go as a single or in the life group to the wild Goose Cafe and you inter- interact with people, that's an opportunity to say to the nations, the Lord reigns. Kids Club that Alice so wonderfully uh, advertised last week and, and we hope that you'll all be like Alice next time on the 6th and 7th of April. Take the days off work, cancel your holidays, come and serve us, serve with us so that we can say to the nations, the Lord reigns, Easter Sunday, whatever it might be, up and coming outreaches that we are planning to do together with some with the village church. Use them as an opportunity. Oh, I don't like that. No, it's an opportunity to say the Lord reigns. So it starts locally. It also includes a global focus, and that's just where I want to finish this morning. There are nations around The world that we need to say to them, the Lord reigns. Now, we are very privileged to be part of Sovereign Grace that allows us to uh, partner with other churches to reach 30 different nations across the world. So you might not know this, but through the family of churches that we're a part of, we're reaching Australia, the Bahamas, Belarus, Bolivia, Brazil, Canada, Colombia, Costa Rica, Croatia, Cuba, Ethiopia, Germany, India, Italy, Jamaica, Liberia, Mexico, Nepal, Pakistan, Philippines, Puerto Rico, South Korea, Spain, Thailand, Turkey, Uganda, the United Kingdom, USA, Venezuela, and Zambia. Okay, so that's from A to Z. Great, wonderful, and we want to keep doing stuff, praying for those nations and their outreach and their work in those countries. But we want to think more specifically about what we could do as a local church together to be more actively involved in declaring God's glory among the nations, either as goers or senders. There's, there's three ways in which you can be involved in missions, all right, according to the Bible. You can be a goer. You can go and do missions, short-term missions, etc., You can send people by giving them money and supporting them, or you can be disobedient. (laughs) That's basically your three options. (laughs) And so we want to not be in the disobedient category, (laughs) obviously. We want to be goers and senders. And so you'll notice on on your sheet that there's a card here because we would like to start a specific fund within our church with the aim to encourage us as a local church to give generously to support and advance gospel ministry and specific church planters that we know and love around the globe. And so on your card, you'll see uh, wherever is my example here. Okay, it's a very simple card. But what we want to do is we want to be senders and goers. And so we want to give and so encourage all of us to give and so into the global work of the gospel uh, uh, so that we can support church planting efforts uh, and short-term missions so that the gospel can go forward. And so we want to encourage you to give to, two, towards, uh, to a mission fund. So this mission fund, if you like, will be a, a separate fund from what we do normally in our giving. So this is uh, hopefully in addition to what we are already doing. And we will set this money aside. It will not be used for administration. It will not be used for um, our own kind of having to 
travel or whatever, that's all going to come out of different funds. The money that is given will go directly to people involved on the front line of missions that we support. There's two categories that we want to give to. One is short-term missions. So we want to be able to help people within our own church to go and do short-term missions. So whether that be Ireland or Italy this year, and perhaps later in the year there might be an opportunities to go to other places. And we, you know, there was the opportunity uh, that fell through, unfortunately, to go to Uganda on the building project with Covenant Mercies. We want to have a pot of money that we have collected as a church that says, ah, we can support our friend, Bobby, to go. Maybe you're too old to travel. Maybe you don't fancy Africa. Maybe you don't fancy the mosquitoes and stuff. Maybe you don't think you can get involved because you don't have the skills, but you've got money in your back pocket that you could give to support someone else. That's what that fund is for. We'd encourage you to consider giving into that. Then there's also, uh, we want to be able to support Nandi and Petra Dobos, who are in Hungary. Now, many of you will remember uh, Nandi and Petra. They were a member of this church uh, they were members of this church for about seven years, I think. And then last summer or last Christmas, I can't remember when it was, so two, two, end of 2018 maybe, something like that, they went back to Hungary. Uh, and Nandi wants to, is, wants to plant a church in Hungary. Uh, uh, so hopefully, yeah, here they are. Look, there we go. So it's Nandi and Petra and their four girls, Lucy, Zoe, Mira, and Elena. And... They are, I can't, I don't even think Erica's here this morning, no. So they're, they're planting in some town, city, called in Hungary. It's, it's in the, right in the slap bang of the center of the country. If you see the map, see the map anywhere? Right, it's a horrible map. But where it says Hungary, very blurredly, that's basically where it is. Bucharest is the capital. It's about a third of the way down uh, the country. And then where it says Hungary, that's where they are. And so we want to support them. Uh, Nandi has to raise all of his own finances to be able to support his family. The average wage in the town that they're living in is 750 euros a month. Uh, And we want to be able to support him so that he can plant a church and preach the gospel in Hungary, which is largely, as most uh, Eastern European nations are, uh, heavily influenced by Catholicism, And so we want to support him. And we would love you and encourage you to take this card, uh, even this morning, because it's very easy to to forget about it if you don't do it now. There's a box at the back. And give some money, but hopefully to both funds. Now, we reckon that there's probably somewhere between 30 and 40 kind of giving units. If we all gave a tenner, we could have £400 a month. That could go to support in gospel missions to reach people that we've never seen and what's honestly what's 10 pound a month to most of us that's like a bottle of wine and a bag of sweets that we'll miss out on that we'll sacrifice for some of us might not be able to do that we might only be able to do a little bit some of us are rolling in it and we might be able to do more so but let's let's go away this morning encourage you to think about it it might be that you could give a one-off gift and that's great and on the um on the other card is all of the bank details, so you can just give it directly into the bank. But we really want to support short-term mission opportunities and Nandi and Petra in church planting in Hungary. And Psalm 96 is given to stir our faith 
and to stir our passion for the nations, to create an impulse within us and a holy ambition to get behind what God is doing in the world, to give, to pray, sometimes to go, to play our part in bringing the best news to the world so that God could have a people of his own from all nations, from all tribes, from all languages, singing to him and ascribing glory and strength to him in new songs. And just as Matt began the service with Revelation 7, let me end with the same text. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing round the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. If the band wants to come back, we're going to sing. And then what we'll do in a second is we're going to sing a song. I'd encourage you then to, if you can fill this in today and drop it in the box at the back, do that. If you can't and you want more time to consider it, which is fair enough, please do it this week or just make a stand in order on your online on, through the bank. And then once we've sung, we're, I'm going to just give us a couple more directions and then we'll be done for this morning. But let's stand together and sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise.